Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening. I am flying solo this evening. Derek and Chris will join me uh, again next week. And so if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, uh, observations to what we talk about here, just not on Thursday evenings, but each weeknight where we explore the Christian and Catholic faith, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com. Again, that's jholl jmj at yahoo.com, or you can always just contact me uh, by way of my website, joholcraft.org, and just go to the, the contact link there, and I will gladly receive your email and respond to you. Now, uh, it is a privilege this Thursday to journey with you in this great topic of theology of the body, a topic where we have been exploring uh, with Christopher West's work, The Love That Satisfies, the thought of Benedict XVI and John Ball II. Remember, the, the work itself, the love that satisfies, is a commentary and exploration of the first half of Benedict XVI's encyclical, God is Love. And again, the focus here is the relationship between eros and agape. And if you're tuning in for the first time, what is eros? Eros is that human erotic physical love, okay? Agape is that divine, sacrificial, cross-like love. And these two meet, and when they do, uh, they consummate something beautiful. And so this is what we have been reflecting upon oh, over the course of the last seven, eight months now. We are in chapter 6, and, and by God's grace, we will finish up chapter 6 this evening and even get into some of chapter 7. What have been some of the topics we've talked about? Well, certainly encountering God who is love. Remember, we were created from love for love, and apart from love, the purpose and meaning of our existence will begin to lose its compass, right? We'll begin to lose its proper direction. And so we have to start there. Who is God? God is love, sacrificial love. And this certainly has been a vehicle to better understand this whole work. Uh, chapter 2, we got into distinguishing true love from its counterfeits. Uh, chapter 3, we looked at the unity of body and soul that we cannot even begin to have a coherent conversation on our sexuality if we don't first understand that anthropology is never just about Cro-Magnon, Neanderthal man, those studies that would have us going back into the Jurassic Age. No, it is always about just not the body, but the body and soul. So therein lies, in many ways, the key to understand what theology is all about, that there is a sacramentality to our body, that there is this outward manifestation of an interior reality. And there's that wonderful truth that we've been playing around with. You know, when you are happy, what do you do? You laugh. It manifests itself. When you are sad, what do you do? You cry. It manifests itself. When you are embarrassed, what do you do? You blush. It manifests itself. There is a sacramentality to our body. That is to say, there's an outward sign that points to an interior reality. Okay, so chapter four, we looked at true eros, 
Okay, chapter 5, the meeting of Eros and Agape, the meeting of this erotic, human, fleshy, physical love with this agape, this divine, sacrificial, cross-like love. Which takes us, of course, to the chapter we are now in, chapter 6, God's Eros. And just by way of snapshot, and again, drawing from Christopher West, it's always good to be mindful of bigger picture stuff, okay? Because when you talk about God's Eros, you really do have to begin to pull back and ask yourself the question, you know, <laughs> what could Benedict XVI possibly mean by, by God's Eros? Well, Benedict says, you know, the divine power that Aristotle at the height of Greek philosophy sought to grasp does not love. It is solely the object of love. The one God in whom Israel believes, on the other hand, loves with a personal love, and his love may certainly be called Eros, yet it is also totally agape. And our reflection there was philosophy can know that God exists. It can even discern certain things about the divine power at the source of existence. But can we conclude without the aid of God's self-revelation, biblical faith, that God loves, right? Aristotle could only conclude that the divine majesty is to be loved. He could never discern the divine power that not only loves, but is love. Not like love. He just doesn't share love. He is love. And of course, Christ is the fullest revelation of this eternal truth. Christ is the fullest revelation of this love. And Christ came as what? What does Scripture remind us? Christ came as a bridegroom, a bridegroom to give up his body for his bride, the church, and for all humanity. Since the love of a bridegroom for his bride involves what? Eros, right? That human love. Benedict can certainly affirm in his work that God's love may certainly also be called Eros. My dear friends, God reveals his divine love through a human heart. Within the Catholic tradition, we have a devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus, to the human heart of Jesus, to the heart of the God-man. Do we not? And it is only from within this logic, this human love, this love that pours forth from the sacred heart, that we can begin to be certain in our claim as Christians, as Benedict puts it so beautifully, that God's love may certainly also be called eros. And does this not lie at the heart of our faith? Because if God's love is also a human love, then our love can also at the same time be sanctified in God's love. What do we read in 2 Peter 1.4? That we are shares and partakers in the divine nature of God. God became man that man might share in God. That is the genius of Christianity. That is what separates us from every other faith, that we can claim this radical sonship. How provocative, how beautiful. I mean, this is beautiful stuff, stuff that just should really shake us up, that God became man, God became flesh, and he poured his human heart, his sacred heart out for us, that we as man might share in the very life of God in his divine love. This is why, my friends, eros can never be limited to the way we think about the erotic within the context of the consummative act. What eros implies is a yearning for all that is true, good, and beautiful. A yearning that cries out for what? Expression. Eros in this broad sense, as Christopher West notes here, shows itself in the pure delight of a child 
taking in a flower, or in the passion of an artist or a poet. And certainly, and this is where we will pick up in chapter 6, the Bible offers examples of Eros in the wonderful Old Testament book of the Song of Songs. And so let us pick up there. We turn to page 107. We read excerpt 42 from Christopher West's work. And again, for clarity here, we're in page 107 of The Love That Satisfies. By excerpt 42, what I mean is this is the 42nd quote that he has pulled from Benedict's work, God is Love. And so this is what Benedict says. The reception of the Song of Songs in the canon of sacred scripture was soon explained by the idea that these love songs ultimately describe God's relation to man and man's relation to God. Thus, the Song of Songs became, both in Christian and Jewish literature, a source of mystical knowledge and experience, an expression of the essence of biblical faith, that man can indeed enter into union with God, his primordial aspiration. Before we reflect upon this, by way of footnote, we have spent recent days talking the stuff of the doctors of the church, and this upcoming Tuesday, uh, George Wing is going to join me, and we're going to get into uh, this most recent doctor of the church, St. Gregory of Narek. Something I had mentioned yesterday, and we've really been reflecting upon, is the last four doctors of the church. If you go back to the only doctor of the church that John Paul II declared was who? St. Therese of Lisieux. While she's not regarded as a classical mystic, certainly she was a religious who had her own mystical encounters with our Lord. But then you get into the two doctors of the church that Benedict XVI declared during his pontificate. And who do you have? St. John of Avila and St. Hildegard of Bingen, two religious mystics. And what of this most recent doctor of the church that Pope Francis declared? St. Gregory of Narc, a mystic. My dear friends, the last four doctors of the church are all doctors that would have us engaging the very essence of what Benedict XVI just talked about as he was reflecting into the nature of the book Song of Songs, where we are called to enter into this mystical union with our Lord, the bridegroom. Huh? So take note of that. I, I dropped that as a footnote because as we speak of what we will talk about this evening, we do it within the context of, you know, the air that the church is breathing right now, huh? And these last four doctors of the church, most especially these last three, you have uh, men and women who offer us some rich, rich insight into what this mystical union is all about. Okay, so why is it then that so many of the greatest mystics of Christian history are inevitably drawn to an explicitly erotic love poem as their favorite book in the Bible? If you're to go to St. Gregory of Narc, what does he get into? What was his first work? His first work, this doctor of the church that Pope Francis just declared, was on the Song of Songs. You better believe he was a religious mystic, poet. It's no wonder. Huh? It is in the end because in the Song of Songs, you have this erotic love poetry that ultimately expresses the essence of divine revelation, the essence of biblical faith. As Christopher West notes, my dear friends, we should let this truth wash away all notions that the church is opposed to sex or otherwise view it negatively. I know we've talked about this a great deal, but all you have to do is go in a song of songs and see the importance of that book and the canon of the Old Testament and begin to realize 
that the church, as she bears witness to the fullness of the revelation of truth, certainly views sex as a positive thing. So sexual love then, as God intended it, offers us an analogy that takes us to the heart of what? Biblical faith. The union in one flesh expresses that man can indeed enter into union with God. This from beginning to end is the central message and invitation of scriptures. You know, I don't know if we always think about it this way, but if you think about it critically, you can say that the first act of redemption of Christ is what? The invitation. The invitation. Because the invitation is what lies at the heart of God who is love, right? My dear friends, what have we said about the nature of love? Yes, the nature of love is to be bound, as G.K. Chesterton says so beautifully. But it also always must be free. Because love never coerces, it never browbeats, it never imposes. It only invites, it proposes, it beckons, it says, come, follow me. It is echoed in the encounter between Philip and Nathaniel when Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, this Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel responds with a curious question, what good comes from Nazareth? And what is Philip's simple response? An invitation. Come and see. And out from that, what takes place? A new encounter. Okay. Love never comes from without, but always from within. It is always an exercise of that more authentic expression of freedom. And in that, it becomes love because it is freely given, not imposed. Okay. Now, as it concerns this beautiful spousal image as it comes to us in sacred scripture, while we have these beautiful images of the vine and the branch and the shepherd and his flock that speak to the unique relationship that God has with man, from beginning to end, it is the image of the union of spouses by which we can begin to comprehend and ultimately enter into the great mystery of being in union with God. Now, I want to reflect a little bit on the word mystery. I've been playing around with this more and more recently. I've talked about it a great deal in the past, but this has been something that over recent weeks has just really been hitting me. Well, what does the word mystery mean? Mysterion, inexhaustible reality. If you go into the Greek, the verb mio, from which we get the word mystery means to initiate into the mysteries of religion. So it involves this communication of truths known only to the initiate. So when you talk about mystery, and you put it in the context of this inexhaustible mystery, the verb that lies at the heart of that word speaks to one who is being initiated into a religious experience. So you cannot separate mystery and religion. Now, why do I talk about this? Well, what have we done with this today? The word mystery, as I was reflecting the other day, <laughs> we pour millions of dollars into programs to discover more what is up there in the sky. We spend millions of dollars into programs to discover more at what lies at the bottom of our ocean floors. We are captivated by mystery. We are captivated by what we don't know. And what I believe as this only bespeaks a deeper truth that we are yearning for God. We are yearning for a religious encounter, you see. Again, 
if you were to look at the uh, top television programs, you know, CSI Las Vegas, CSI Miami, CSI Boston, top programs. What does CSI stand for? Crime scene investigation. What are these all about? This craze over forensic science and ultimately this craze over mystery, mystery. Okay. We are captivated by mystery. But what we have been about on this program is a deeper understanding of what lies at the heart of mystery, huh? The agape, the divine sacrificial love. Yes, we talk about CSI Las Vegas and and Miami and Boston. What about CSI Calvary? There was a crime scene 2,000 years ago. And if we are going to uncover the deeper meaning of this crime scene, what do we need to do? We need to roll up our sleeves and gain a deeper appreciation of what this love was all about. And this is what we've been doing over the last eight to nine months. Very important. I mean, in its succulized form, mystery connotes this logical puzzle or suspenseful whodunit. We think of, you know, uh, clever gathering and, and the analyzing of clues and that this is what it's all about. But it only points to a deeper truth, a deeper mystery, which is a religious encounter, is it not? So when we talk the stuff of union with God as something that is mystical. Yes, we are on track by using the word mystery. Because if we are going to have a religious experience, it certainly is about entering into that mystery and entering into that union. This is what Paul talks about in his letter to the Ephesians, right? What does he say? We've talked about it so much, and we'll continue to talk about it so much more. (laughs) For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says, this is a great mysterion. And I mean in reference to Christ and the church. John Paul II says, this is a magnificent synthesis concerning the great mystery. It is the compendium, or summa in some sense, of the teaching about God and man which is brought to fulfillment by Christ. In the biblical comparison of Christ's union with the church as to the one flesh union of spouses, we must also recognize that as John Paul II also observed, it is not only a a comparison, a sense of a metaphor. We must also admit at the same time, John Paul II says, that the very essence of marriage contains a particle, I love that, a particle of the divine mystery. Otherwise, for John Paul II, this whole analogy would hang in a void. Let me reread that. This is John Paul II. One must admit that the very essence of marriage contains a particle of the divine mystery. It is no wonder, my friends, that when two become one, they begin to speak the divine language of God fluently. Because there's an exchange of divine particles. There's a consummative encounter with exponential value to it. And John Baltu goes on to say, Thus, the analogy of conjugal or spousal love helps us to penetrate into the very essence of the mystery. If you go back to how we were defining uh, the word mystery, the inexhaustible reality, but also this being initiated into religious experience. I mean, have you ever thought of it that way? The consummative act is an initiation into a religious experience, is actually a religious encounter. This is what St. Paul is saying. This is what John Paul II is saying. We've touched upon it before, but maybe here in new words. When two become one, there is a profound, dare I say, ecstatic encounter with God. 
I remember Chris was with me some months ago, and he was talking about when he came across this for the first time, he had to pull off on the side of the road. If you are listening to this on the radio and you're hearing it for the first time, maybe you need to pull off on the side of the road that has created, that created in the image and likeness of God, male and female. He had a plan for us, my friends, and he stamped this plan in our very anthropology. And by doing so, he says, share in my very life, in my very love. So provocative, so edgy, and yet at the same time, so beautiful. Brothers and sisters, life is not a problem to be solved suddenly, but a mystery to be lived continuously. And we do this most perfectly when we donate our flesh to our brides, to our spouses. And yes, the consummative act, of course, but also in every way that we turn ourselves over in that sacrificial dimension of self-giving. Okay, so... What can we conclude based upon what we have talked about up to this point? But that the essence of the mystery is precisely union with God. As a sacrament, marriage, again, not only symbolizes union with God, it really, actually, and truly brings it about. So to the degree that they integrate eros and agape, spouses are living in union with God. John Paul II says this, this seems to be the integral meaning of the sacramental sign of marriage. In this way, through the language of the body, man and women encounter the great mystery. This is the beauty of that consummative encounter, the sexual act. Essentially, the spouses encounter the mystery of God's passionate eros agape love, consummated in Christ's union with his bride, the church. You know, this is... Very rich theological stuff. But my dear listeners, I really do encourage you to spend time with this, to read John Paul II, to read Benedict XVI and Christopher West, and anyone who you can get your hands on. Because the deeper you go into this stuff of theology of the body, the more joy you will come to know. Remember that the word joy comes from the same word where we get grace, ilcaris. Grace and joy belong to each other. And when you start thinking about grace as the very life and goodness of God, the very essence of God, that which we draw from to share in God, and that this is joy, yes, there is a reason why in the consummative encounter, in the consummative act, we share in God's eternal bliss. It is no wonder the world pines for it. Mm. And certainly... This passionate eros agape love is the love that the church feels compelled to proclaim anywhere and everywhere to the ends of the earth. In fact, it would be important to note, my dear friends, that all of her moral teachings, that is the church, are meant to ensure that this love shines forth. They're given to help man, to help woman, distinguish true love from its counterfeits. They are given to steer us away from the cheap wine and, as we talked before, lead us to the new wine of Cana. Amen. Okay, let us uh, jump into chapter 7, uh, just to get the ball rolling here. The purpose of Eros. And this is uh, excerpt number 43. And as we get into this, we'll really be able to, of course, develop this in upcoming weeks. This is Benny the 16th. 
In the biblical narrative of creation, the idea is certainly present that man is somehow incomplete, driven by nature to seek in another the part that can make him whole. The idea that only in communion with the opposite sex can he become complete. The biblical account thus concludes with a prophecy about Adam. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become, as Genesis 2.24 reminds us, one flesh. Now, this prophecy about Adam, my friends, is even more so, in every way, a prophecy about the new Adam in Jesus Christ. Remember, Romans 5.14, Jesus Christ is the new Adam who's come to restore us to be new men in him. We were just talking about Ephesians 5. Let us return to Ephesians 5. And of course, this great mystery. Again, man's leaving father and mother to become one flesh with his bride refers to Christ and the church. Let's think about this in a new context here. Is not Christ the one who left his father in heaven? He left the home of his mother on earth. And why? To give up his body for his bride so that we, the bride of Christ, might become one flesh with him. Where do we become one flesh with Christ? Of course, we do this most fully here on earth in the Eucharist, which John Paul II described as the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. My dear friends, every time we receive the Eucharist, we are entering into a nuptial union with our Lord, this spousal union with our Lord. In the Eucharist, Christ is united with the church, his body as the bridegroom with the bride. All this is contained in the letter to the Ephesians, is it not? John Paul II says this, Christ, in instituting the Eucharist, thereby wished to express the relationship between man and woman, between what is feminine and what is masculine. It is a relationship willed by God, both in the mystery of creation and in the mystery of redemption. Now, in the mystery of creation, what is quote-unquote masculine and what is quote-unquote feminine is consummated in man and woman's becoming one flesh. In the mystery of redemption, what is masculine and what is feminine is consummated in Christ and the church's becoming one flesh. Eros, then, That burning desire for communion that God planted in our being on the day of creation, my dear friends, is intended, is meant to lead to agape. Again, that fulfillment of communion that God offered us on the day of redemption. As Christopher West notes, perhaps we could say that eros is more specifically the love of creation and agape is more specifically the love of redemption. I love that. In other words, the holy communion of creation in Eros is meant to lead us to the holy communion of redemption, agape. Eros, marriage, agape, Eucharist. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.